the gun went off. This guy took off. He was way ahead of us. I didn't know who he was. I'd never seen him before. Dad asked me to give them splits at a half mile, and Roger was already in the lead. Didn't know anything about him. All I know is he ran really fast that day and looked good doing it. There's this dude that I had never seen before, and there's like long hair flowing behind him, blows through the finish line in like 12.06, breaking the record. I'm saying to myself, who the hell is that guy? He did, in fact, set the course record. He, and he didn't just set it, he blistered it. Every big name has run that course. 12.06 on that course is really amazing. He destroyed that course, and that's guys like Brad Hudson, Alberto Salazar, and he beat the heck out of those times. That was our home course. Van Cooler Park in the Bronx there. It was an easy course to potentially get lost in. When we got into the back hills, he was still a good deal ahead of me. I was starting to get a little concerned, and then he was gone. He just disappeared. This is exactly what happened. He set the record, and then word got out that he possibly went the wrong way. Oh, God. He went the wrong way. It was, uh, it was a strange day. I said in earlier episodes that my connection to the Haley's was one big reason for doing this podcast. It truly was, along with the excellence of the programs and the runners at Largo and Lado. I will say that my interest was piqued when I learned more about the race that we're going to talk about today. Van Cortland Park is America's cross-country mecca. It was one of those things talked about on message boards, but you never quite knew if it was true. Roger set the course record in some big race in New York City. I do remember that. It's before communication we have today, but I do remember that he ran something crazy. That's former Seminole High School runner Keir Breitenfeld, whose memory did not fail him on what happened with Roger that day in the Bronx. It was indeed crazy, the stuff of message board legend, because it went beyond just Roger ran a fast time. A story in Florida was just that. We raced before him and then we saw him run. We were like, whoa, we couldn't believe anybody could run that fast on that course. The story in other parts of the running community was that Roger had cut part of the course that day. That led me to do some research. And one of the places I looked was in the archives of Tampa Bay area newspapers. Sure enough, there were headlines and article mentions of Letchworth running faster on the same course than Alberto Salazar and Marty LaQuarrie had. There were quotes from Jim Thurston, the countryside coach, about how well his team did. The only problem was this. When I started looking at the New York papers and then reread those message board posts and tracked down the author of some of those posts and began finding runners who were there that day, it became apparent that what was published in the St. Pete Times, the Tampa Tribune, and Clearwater Sun just wasn't true. I know how it happened because I've been a high school sports writer and this was the era before the internet. So these results were not online somewhere in 1986. The Florida papers obviously weren't going to travel to New York for a high school race, so they relied on the information from the coach. It happens all the time. There is an understanding when an event is out of town that the coach calls in the event and gives an accurate reporting of what happened. Now, a basketball coach can give you the box score of a game and all the point totals and leave out if there were a bunch of technical fouls or something like that. It's still the final score of what happened in the game. It's still the important parts. The truth about that race? Yeah, he went out really fast. And I would always run pretty much even pace. And 
he was way ahead right away, and uh, it seemed almost suicidal, the pace. That's Tom McArdle, who went by T.J. McArdle when he ran for Garden City High on Long Island in the 1980s. McArdle was no slouch. He ran an 8.55 two-mile in track season and was one of the top runners in the nation. But he didn't see much of Roger that day at Van Cortlandt Park. I was a little bit stressed out, and I was like, well, he'll probably come back to us. When we got into the back hills, he was still a good deal ahead of me. Uh, I was starting to get a little concerned, and then he was gone, and <laughs> uh, he just disappeared. Roger was all alone in the wooded area of the course known as the back hills, except for a runner named John McGuire, who had competed in the freshman-only race earlier that day, along with teammate Marcus Higgins for nearby Bronxville High. That particular race, I remember, usually I ran with my team, but they had a specific freshman-only race that was shorter. And I think, I, and I won. I remember that I won. So I was out with Marcus, like warming down later that day or going along the course to root our team on. That, that's right. McGuire is heard in this episode's intro clips talking about how the course is an easy place to get lost. His memory isn't totally clear, but he does recall seeing Letchworth in the back hills. I remember that's where you could make a, a slight turn. <laughs> and so I, I kind of remember that happened being like, oh, God, like he went the wrong way. If I remember correctly, he was like almost like alone, um, went the wrong way. And then the pack went the right way. At this point, I'm going to stop. Consider this some mid-race commentary. By now, if you've heard the intro clips and you've listened closely to previous episodes of All the Miles Mattered, you know that Roger was really fast and that in this race, he came across the finish line first. Nobody knows why he ran a different course than the other runners did, but I don't think he did it on purpose. Some may disagree, but I'm not sure how a guy who had never run there before would know where to slice maybe 50 yards off the course. That just seems crazy. Also, running off the course, even just a little bit, is grounds for disqualification in races. So, Roger caught a break that day because he was not DQ'd, which we'll get to in a bit. Again, mid-race commentary. Countryside cross-country in the mid-80s was a scene. They had talent, they worked hard, and they definitely had an image. One manifested in several ways. One was a race about four weeks before Van Cortland, when Roger was wearing a gold chain. The chain said AWESOME in capital letters, and his course record time was taken away by a disqualification. Wearing a necklace in a race is against FHSAA rules. The Cougars were more than style. The Cougars were good. They were the only 4A program not named Lado or Largo to win the boys' title in the 80s. Here's Countryside's Jeremy Duplissy. My fastest time my junior year for three miles was 15.23. So I was I was a player. You know, we had Roger Letchworth was our number one guy, and he was a sub-1440 guy. And Chip Backus was our number two guy, and he was 15 flat for three miles. Then there was four of us that could run 15 lows to 1545 in any meet. Then here's some about Countryside's image back then from Coach Bobby Ennis and then again Duplissy. For the time, they were kind of the Miami football when the Miami were the bad boys, you know. They were the equivalent of that in, in cross country, I think. 
we'd be on a run and we'd run through the mall with, you know, we're running with shorts and no shirts, running through the mall to just make a scene. Kind of ridiculous, you know, not very respectful. So we were kind of, we lived up to it a little bit all, all the time. And, and, and then coach would get a call, you know, runners would run through the mall, you know, <laughs> we would run in a pack through the mall on a training run. I said just a bit ago that countryside cross country was a scene. Well, what the spectators and other runners saw October 11th, 1986, was something they won't ever forget. The image of him coming across the finish line with the hair flowing and everything and the time running like 12.06 or something. And I was like, damn, who is this guy? It was crazy. That's the voice of former University of Florida runner and Olympian Dan Middleman. Middleman was a Long Island rival of TJ McArdle then. Middleman ran in an earlier section of the race that day and figured he would have one of the top times. So he was scoping out the finishes of the remaining sections of the race to see how he would stack up. He wasn't the only one watching the finishing times. Jamal Prince, a runner from Boston, and his Cambridge, Ringe, and Latin teammates were doing the same thing. They had their eyes on the team title. He threw his hand up, number one. I remember seeing that. He had every right to do that. That's how impressed we were. At that point, we kind of had an idea of who the top kids were in the races and the rounds, but he didn't know anything about them. Still don't. We find out he's from Florida and he's got a tan look. You know, we're all Northeast guys. I'm from Boston. And we're like, whoa, where'd this kid come from? I'll never forget it. And over the years, we've, we've actually had conversations about it, my teammates and I. And we were like, man, that kid from Florida? That's why the memory stays alive, because it was so fast. <laughs> Middleman knew it was a big deal for McArdle to get beat, period. And the margin of victory was puzzling to both of them. When I finished, I heard I'd been beaten by almost a minute, and I was a bit shocked. He just looked like a freaking Greek god coming through the finish line. And you're influenced by the time he's running. If he had run like 12.28 or something like that, then you wouldn't be nearly as impressed. What was hilarious is there were college coaches at this race, right? Right. The St. John's coach was this guy, Duffy Mahoney, who was kind of a character. That dude went into a full sprint, scholarship papers in hand, just chasing after Roger Letchworth, trying to get him to sign him to St. John's. And we're all just like wondering, what the hell just happened? Because if you're going to run that fast, we know who you are. Now, what the race officials ruled was something interesting. Roger indeed came across the finish line at a time of 12.06 for the 2.5-mile hilly course. An article in the Bronxville paper mentions that runners told their coach about a guy they saw cut the course. That coach then told race officials. Jeremy Duplissy explains. He set the record, and then word got out that he possibly went the wrong way. So we all ran the course and let Roger lead and say, tell us which way you went. He showed us, and he definitely went the wrong way. Roger was so far ahead that second place couldn't see him. And I went both ways. I ran both ways. And it didn't seem like any different. If it made any difference, it was seconds. It wasn't major. And so that's how we found out. And then they said, okay, it's not officially breaking Marty LaCourie's record now. So the race officials decided no record time, no disqualification from the race, and Roger could keep the victory. An article later that week in the Long Island newspaper Newsday quoted a meet official as saying, there was precedent for the ruling from a college race run earlier at Van Cortlandt Park. Here's Countryside's Chip Backus. 
regardless, it was off the course, you know, it was off the course. But they should have had it marked better also. There's a question on there, do you have an official there or you have it marked better? And so that was our other thing. It was like, man, that stinks. Of course, all of us went the right way. And, you know, Roger was kind of ditzy some. He was a he was a flighty guy and he just, you know, sometimes got a little spacey. And so who knows if he, what world he was in when he cut that way. Because we all did go the right way anyway. <laughs> but still, yeah, he, he was flying for sure. Keep in mind that in Jim Thurston's version of the events, the ones that the Tampa Bay Papers ran with, with quotes from him, the headline said, Letchworth sets record. I'm interested to know why Thurston didn't report the true outcome of the race, but I can't ask him. He died in 2014, but I did ask his son. Well, I I think it's because my dad disputed it and said, you know, if you guys go back, you know, the path he ran was actually farther than the course. Um, and so my dad just you know, refused to accept the fact that he was disqualified. Kind of like, you know, Roger won. Roger, man, my father kind of, Roger was kind of a special guy. And, you know, not a lot of guys just walked into my father's life with that kind of talent. Now, he did coach, you know, some really good athletes, including Gary Funkhauser in junior high. But, you know, Roger sometimes would break the rules that in the past my father would have disqualified any of his runners from the next race. And he kind of let Roger, you know, slide on a few things. Hmm. What do you mean that would disqualify him? Like, Oh, like, you know, he had a beer or he stayed out too late or, you know, he showed up late for a practice or whatever. Rules for the team. And, you know, Roger kind of played, I'm Roger so I can do what I want. And my father kind of let him get away with it. Remember in the previous episode, Duplissy said that he sensed animosity toward Largo and Leto, and that he never really understood where it was coming from. Largo was the established power, just as Jim Thurston was becoming a coach. He lived in Largo and coached at the old Largo Junior High before getting the job at Clearwater High and then Countryside. Here again is Chip Backus. He knew Coach Haley pretty well, obviously, over the years. And he always kept talking about how he wanted to beat Largo. He's like, I got to beat I got to beat Haley. I got to beat him. You know, I got to beat him. Remember also that Michael Thurston, Coach Thurston's son, ran at Largo in the 1970s. I asked him how his father regarded the Packers program. I think he was in awe of it, to be honest with you. I think he always tried to overachieve or overwork his guys so they could compete with Largo. On the next episode, we'll talk about 1985 state champ Countryside and its bid to repeat in 86 in the weeks after Van Cortlandt Park. We're entering the home stretch of the show, and I appreciate you coming along for the run and for this look back. I've presented some stories that aren't complimentary of Coach Thurston, but I'm going to leave you with a story from Irv Batten, who ran for Thurston at Clearwater High and later became a coach himself in South Carolina. Batten was a new coach in the early 90s and taking his Somerville High team to the state meet. We roll up in the van to Columbia to the state meet and I look over in the parking lot and there's like three vehicles and one of them is a Winnebago and I know coach Thurston had a Winnebago and I looked over and it's Florida tags I said you've got to be kidding me coach Thurston and his wife drove up from Largo that's where he lived right next to Taylor Park drove up to Columbia to watch me coach my first state championship wow and we won by one point I had two coaches come up to me before the meet started and they're like hey there's this old guy walking around telling everybody that he came up to watch you and your team and your team's gonna win the state meet and i'm like oh my goodness 
coach, what are you doing? <laughs> but that's a cool Coach Thurston story.